Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. played with this text before, but I am always try to present it in a different way. And I thought, you know, it's the Christmas story. This is my um, 25th time of doing Christmas messages annually. So more than one, more than 25, probably a few hundred Christmas messages. How many chapters in the gospel do they actually talk about the Christmas story? Um, Well, we have Matthew's account in chapters 1 and 2. We have Luke's account as he deals with it in chapters 1 and 2 of his gospel. We have John, if you want to take that method on it. Mark doesn't touch it, but John speaks about the Lord being at the very beginning of creation in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so we have that angle. Pastor Kevin took that angle a few years ago, and so I have touched on these passages before, but what I've never done was to look at the context, and I just said this last Sunday, it's good sometimes when you look at a verse of scripture to look at the context from where it came. Now our context in the Christmas story is here in Matthew chapters one and two, but the context of where the verses that Matthew quotes for us, they come from the Old Testament. And so this is what I had decided to do, to look at them and what I discovered This week, especially, and I think it'll be true when we come back to this in a couple of weeks. We have six prophecies that Matthew points to concerning the birth of Christ. And one of these is very difficult to place in the Old Testament. But the other five, they are not difficult to place in the Old Testament. Uh, We can go right to the address, as we will today. We'll go to Isaiah 7.14, Numbers 24.17, Micah 5.2. We're going to look at three of these prophecies today. And every single one of the prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus Christ came at very um, difficult and often climatic times for the nation of Israel. Israel was in trouble, and sometimes they were at war, sometimes they were in blatant apostasy. Sometimes they would be ready to step into uh, adultery against the Lord. And uh, it would cost Israel greatly because of their sin. But in each of these situations, and we'll see it in each one today, a prophecy came forth in the middle of that calamity, whatever the calamity might be. And we'll look at those today from the context from the Old Testament that God set forth a prophecy that would not only ultimately bless Israel, but the whole world. Matthew wanted to 
show that Jesus is the Messiah and that his birth came according to the word of God. Today, I would like us to see that not only did is Jesus the Messiah and that these prophecies came from the word of God, I want us to see that these prophecies that spoke about the coming of Jesus Christ also came at a time when Israel was often in a place of rebellion against God. But God's grace shone so brightly that he gave prophecies that all Israel knew and that we know to this day. So I titled this Six Prophecies of Jesus' Birth. This is part one. And today we're going to look at Emmanuel from Isaiah 7:14, a star and a scepter from Numbers 24, 17, and the one to be ruler from Micah 5:2. And so the Emmanuel prophecy that is found in Isaiah 7:14, it's also given to us and quoted by Matthew in Matthew 1:23, but reading from Isaiah 7:14. The word of God tells us, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. Now, this prophecy was spoken to the king of Judah, Ahaz, and he was in a place of great failure. He was a king that was turning away from the God of Israel and turning to other gods the gods of the land that Israel had dispossessed, and the gods of nations that weren't even of the land of Canaan, gods of Syria and Damascus, and gods um, even further than that. Not only was he turning to other gods, his country was at a time of war, and two nations had actually gathered against him. And instead of turning to the God of Israel for help, he turned to a pagan king for help. He stripped away some of the gold and silver of the temple to buy off this king that he could bring him in to bring aid to, Is to Judah. This is the southern tribe of Judah. And it worked. And they found victory for a season. But Ahaz's heart was far from the Lord, and their people were in a desperate place. Ahaz, his name means he has grasped, or possessor. <laughs> I can't say it, but he had not possessed anything to that of God. He had not grasped the things of God. He had actually fastened his grip upon the false gods of the nation of Israel, his sister to the north, and the gods of the nations that were around him, and the gods of the nations that dwelt in the land before him. And King Ahaz's brazen idolatry led their nation into greater apostasy. And as Judah turned away from the Lord, God caused Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, to come against Judah. And they did conquer Judah. They crippled Ahaz. They captured the port city of Elath. They killed one of Ahaz's sons and two of his officers. 
They killed 120,000 in Judea. The Bible tells us in a single day, 120,000. We remember here 9-11 of 2001 where 3,000 in the U.S. were killed in a single day, and we think that is a great calamity. Or Israel, right now, currently, in the nation of Israel, on October 7th of this year, where over 1,400 were killed in a single day, and um, the numbers keep kind of changing a bit, but anywhere from 140 to over 200 hostages taken in a single day. And here, Scripture records that 120,000 people in a single day were killed. And 200,000 women, the sons and the daughters, were taken in the spoils of war. Talk about a great calamity where the nation had come to a place where they should have been falling on their knees. But instead, Ahaz turned to Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king. He took silver and gold and he brought it from the temple from his own personal treasure and he bought him off that he could help gain victory over Israel and victory over Syria. And so this Assyrian king, he was victorious. He killed the king of Syria. He took Damascus and killed their people and took them captive. And Ahaz was so pleased when he heard about it that he went up to Damascus. Damascus is just a bit north of Israel. It's in the same location uh, it is today as it was during biblical times. And here's the thing that really kind of messes with my head. Ahaz went to Damascus where... The gods of Damascus were not able to protect the king of Syria. The king of Syria was put to death. His people were conquered by the Assyrians. And yet Ahaz saw the altar in Damascus and was so impressed with the altar of Damascus that he sent down to Jerusalem to one of his priests. He brought him up. He had him draw a copy of this altar. He said, I want this thing built and placed in Jerusalem before I return to Jerusalem. And they made a duplicate of this failed altar, of this failed God. And when Ahaz saw it, when he came to Jerusalem, he replaced the bronze altar of the temple with this pagan altar and said, this is where we will worship as a nation. And yet God sent Isaiah, he sent his son to him to tell him, tell King Ahaz that within 65 years, both the Syrians and the Israelis would be dealt with. And God said, Ahaz, I have this. I'll handle it. You'll see. They'll go into captivity, and history records that Syria was taken into captivity in 732 B.C. And Assyria, of whom Ahaz put his trust, they went into captivity in 722. Israel, I mean, fell into the Assyrian hands in 722 B.C. Both the nations that Ahaz was so worried about, and God would take care of, 
within 65 years of that time. Now, that seems like a long time. For me, it is a lifetime. I'm not 65 years old yet. But in God's perspective, it wasn't so long. It was just a few seconds in his time clock. So it appeared that King Ahaz's alliance with the Assyrian king had worked, but God challenged Ahaz to place his trust in him and not in man. God then asked Ahaz for any sign. He goes, ask for a sign and I will give it to you that these things will take place. The things he's talking about, the destruction of Israel and the destruction of Syria. And King Ahaz says, I'm not falling for that. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to ask for a sign from God. I don't know why he even cared. He didn't really worship God, but there was some sense of some respect, some awe, that he refused to ask of a sign from God. And so God said, if you're not going to ask a sign, then I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign that the Lord gave to him on that day is what we know of as Isaiah 7.14. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 23, it tells us the Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks, foolishness. And sometimes people want a sign. They want to know. They want to see. They want proof. And in Paul's day, he said, we just simply preach Christ and him crucified. Well, Isaiah 7, 13 and 14, it tells us, so the sign that he gave, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So, like many of the Old Testament prophecies, not all of them, but several of them, we find that there was a near fulfillment that was fulfilled during the lives of the people when the prophecy was set forth, like in the day of Isaiah, and there was a future fulfillment of this. The near fulfillment dealt with Isaiah and his virgin wife that he would take, And she would bear him a son. That would be the near fulfillment. But we know that the future fulfillment of this would be of Jesus Christ and the virgin birth through Mary. But he goes on from there to speak about this alliance and about this war that would take place in the land of Israel. And this makes totally total sense if you think about the nation of Israel and you know a little bit about the histories of the wars especially during their time. They didn't have planes and drones, and they couldn't fly in from another country. And for those who wanted to come, let's just simply say from Babylon, and Babylon wanted to attack Egypt or Syria, which was north of Israel, or Assyria, again, north of Israel, or later on, Greece, north of Israel again. If they wanted to do war against Egypt, oftentimes, the quickest land route that they could take was to send their troops right through Israel. And this is partly because when you go to the east side of the Jordan River, there is a mountain ridge there over in the area of Jordan today that is a ridgeline that does not give up. 
And so from Babylon, the easiest route would be to, the quickest route would be to go on the eastern side of this land ridge that was east of Israel. That was the most direct route, but it was a desert land. There wasn't food supply for their soldiers. So the most convenient thing that they did, and they often did it, was to go to northern Israel, cut across where there was an opening. There's actually an area that we know of uh, Megiddo in prophecy in the future where many wars have been fought. There's a flat plain there that's some three miles long and a mile wide where many wars have been fought. And Napoleon even said that that battlefield was one of the most bloodiest places in the world. And they would just cut through Israel. On the way, they could mess with the armies of Israel. They could pick up food, cattle, sheep, plunder the Israelis, who often were not strong enough to prevent them. And this is kind of what took place during this time as Israel would become a battleground. Isaiah 7, 18 through 20, it tells us, and this is the Lord's speaking. He says, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly. Now he's talking about Egypt there. He will whistle for the fly. That is in the furthest parts of the rivers of Egypt. And for the bee, that is in the land of Assyria. And so now we have our two uh, nations that will come and war in the land of Israel. We have Assyria and Egypt. And they will come and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys under the cliffs of the rocks on all the thorns and all the pastures. And that same day the Lord will shave with the haired razor with those from beyond the river. So this goes all the way to the area of Babylon with the king of Assyria and the head and the hair of the legs. And they will also be removed. They will also remove the beard. So King Ahaz had hired Assyria the haired razor, whom God would use to strip the land, likened to a man being shaved from head to toe. Uh, Judea, their shaving would result in these armies coming to make war in their land. And while they were there, the Assyrian armies and the Egyptian armies and Babylon even kind of coming into play in this battle at this time, while they were there, they would reduce Judea's food supply. The survivors of that land at that time would live on a diet of curds and honey, according to Isaiah 7:15 and Isaiah 8:21 and 22. Their once beautiful grain fields would be trampled by war. No one would even attempt to tend the land. The place would become fallow. It would become a place of briars and thorns. The place where wheat and grapes and vineyards uh, used to be would become ranges of cows and cattle and sheep. Instead of putting their reliance upon God, Ahaz put his reliance upon the kingdom of men whom God allowed to reduce Israel, Judah, to a wasteland. And thus Israel was destroyed ultimately taken into captivity. But Isaiah and his son represented both a coming calamity and also, at the same time, God's coming salvation. In Galatians 4, 5, and 6, it says, 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew picks up on this. It's about 700 years later when this prophecy is fulfilled. And here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we're dropped into this account of Joseph when he had learned about Mary being pregnant with, from his perspective, another man's child. They were betrothed. They had not had their wedding day yet, but a betrothal period was a, a legal contract that had been signed, and he was wondering what he should do with Mary. And he was kind of thinking about putting her away secretly, having a secret divorce, sending her away that she could have this child. And at that time, an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might fulfill that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Emmanuel, it means Yahweh is salvation. And what a privilege that God gave to Joseph to name his son Jesus. Emmanuel, Yahweh is salvation. Along with his name, the angel gave Joseph a prophecy to confirm that which the angel had spoken to him, saying this is in fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. We know it today as Isaiah 7, 14, that the virgin will conceive and give forth Give, bring forth a son and call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And it is my hope that you have realized Jesus is the Savior of the world and have received this great gift of salvation that can only come through faith in his name. So when this prophecy first came, Isaiah seven fourteen, Israel, Judah, it was a mess. Their king had turned away from the Lord God of Israel. Their king had abandoned the faith for a pagan altar. And still God blessed the nation with this prophecy that has blessed us to this day. Isaiah's prophecy helped Joseph to understand that the long-awaited Messiah, Emmanuel, was Mary's son. The next prophecy that he goes to is found in Matthew 2 2 but the account actually comes from the book of Numbers the actual prophecy is Numbers 24 17 but it covers uh, several chapters so we're going to go ahead and read every verse found in Numbers chapters 22 to 24 so uh, we're going to be here a while just kidding I'll summarize it for you the prophecy a star and a scepter Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, the scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab 
and destroy all the sons of tumult. Now I titled this first subsection and taking a base verse from Deuteronomy 2.9, but I, I titled this A Needless Fear because this whole prophecy came uh, from a king, Balak, of Moab, who had heard what Israel had done before they went into the promised land. He had heard what Israel had done to the great kings, Og and Sion, the king of the Amorites, and he had heard what happened to them, how Israel had conquered them. And these kings were giants. I mean, they were physical giants. One of the kings had a bed that, uh, according to Scripture, was much larger than a California king. And his armament, in fact, his sphere was described as being a weaver's beam. And these kings were so great that they were referred to for Israel as an encouragement. Many times as they would go into battle, they would keep coming back to these two kings' names. Even Psalm 135, 10 through 12 mentioned them, saying, He defeated many nations. He slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and the kings of all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their lands as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Sion's name is mentioned 37 times in the Bible. Og is mentioned 22 times in the battle. These were great victories, and they were victories of encouragement. It's kind of like it made me think of uh, down in Texas many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago. Remember the Alamo. Remember what happened. Now, that was a defeat for Texas, but it gave them strength to be victorious over the Mexican armies at that time. This was a victory for Israel that encouraged them that as God was with Israel then to defeat literal giants, he will be with us now. And yet the king of Moab, Balak, had no reason to be afraid or to be dismayed. He had no reason to fear because God had not given Israel permission to conquer Moab. And yet the king of Moab, he decided that he needed to go to war against Israel, and he would go to war against Israel. But before he went to battle, he hired a pagan prophet named Balaam, and he hired him to curse the nation of Israel. And we find this account in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. But just to back up his needless fear, in Deuteronomy 2.9 it tells us, Do not harass Moab. This is the Lord's commandment to Moses, do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given it to Ar, to the descendants of Lot, as a possession. These guys were kin. They were related to Abraham through Abraham's nephew, Lot. And God said, Israel, you can't have their land. But Moab meddled with Israel, which ultimately brought about Moab's own destruction. It was after Israel's conquest of the promised land that God delivered Moab into Israel's hands through 
Edu, Edu, the second king, second judge, I mean, of Israel in Judges 3.25, it tells us, as Edu would say, follow me, for the Lord has delivered our enemies into our hands. And so they would go to war against them. They would battle against the Moabites and the Ammonites at that time. But it was a needless battle because God had not from the perspective of Moab prior to Moab meddling with Israel, God said, Israel, you can't touch them. But Moab, the king, Balak, hired Balaam that he could meddle with the children of Israel, and he did. He hired Balaam in Numbers 24, 17, our key verse, that prophecy that came forth. But Balaam's just an interesting prophet. He was a pagan prophet. Could you hear from Yahweh, the God of Israel, and when he was requested to come to curse Israel, he he said, wait, I need to ask God if I can go. And he went and he inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, don't go with these men. And he came out and he said, I can't go with you. And so the men went back to Balak, the king of Moab, and he said he won't come. He said he can't come. And so Balak, the king of Moab, sent his princes, his own sons, and he tried to buy him off with great wealth, with great promises of wealth. And Balaam saw the great wealth that was offered him, and he said, let me ask God again. Maybe I got it wrong. So he went and prayed, and, and he was persistent on this, so much so that God said, you can go, but only say what I tell you to say. And so he came back, and he said, I can go with you, but I can only say what God says. And whatever he says, that I will say. And so he was hired to curse Israel. And four times he stood over the nation of Israel and he blessed them and he cursed the other nations and he even cursed Moab, as we find in our prophetic text of Numbers 24:17. So he had told King Balak, I can only prophesy the word that God gives me in Numbers 22:38. Now, have I any power to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So he, he was honest in that sense. I can only say what God says for me to say. And he ended up blessing Israel instead of cursing Israel. But that did not get Balaam the wealth that was promised him. He hadn't done his job. His job was to curse Israel. And so I believe, and we look at Scripture, we discover some interesting things about him. He's actually named three times in the New Testament. I don't have all those bookmarks for us today, but I have one of them. It's in Revelation 2.14 that says, when God is speaking to the church in Pergamos, he says, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So he was faithful in the sense of being a prophet and speaking forth the word of God. He spoke what God told him to speak. But maybe taking off the prophet's mantle and putting it aside, he turned to Balak, the king of Moab, and he said, now I can tell you that I can't curse Israel, but I can make it 
in order that God will curse his own people. Make it that Israel will sin against God and God will bring judgment. And so, Revelation 2.14, that stumbling block was the women of Moab that went among the young men of Israel. They enticed them. They were having sexual relationships with them. And God sent a plague among the nation of Israel that cost Israel 24,000 lives. Once again, we see these great numbers. Israel is in a place where calamity came upon their nation, and it was their own cause. They were the ones who caused this calamity to come upon them because they were not faithful to the word of God. They were committing adultery, and it cost them 24,000 lives. And yet out of this time of self-inflicted calamity came a prophecy that blesses us to this day. Before Balaam uttered the words of Numbers 24:17, he said twice in Numbers 24, verse 4 and verse 16, he said, my eyes wide open. He had a vision. He said, with my eyes wide open, and he said it twice. He had a vision of Jesus. And he prophesied to them, saying, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So he had a vision of Jesus. this star and this scepter that was set before them. And we find that the star itself, it's an interesting thing. If you look through all the Old Testament and the New Testament, you only find, I've only been able to find, two references to Jesus as a star. He's not referenced there in Numbers 24, 17, and again in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, 16, where Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify of you. These things to the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright and the morning star. And so this star, speaking of Jesus, the scepter, speaking of his authority as king over the nation of Israel, and again tying that to Genesis 49.10, a scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes that the star and the scepter being prophesied by a pagan prophet who looked down through the centuries prophetically seeing Jesus, spoke of Jesus to the king of Moab. There were magi then as we come to the New Testament when Matthew gives this account of this prophecy, he speaks about the magis who came. We know of these, these three kings of Orient kind. We don't know if they were three kings. The Bible never tells us their number. What we do know is that they presented three gifts. And thus, someone wrote a song based off the three gifts, 
threw in the three kings. In fact, historically, um, there are names given to them, and those names aren't found in Bible. I shouldn't even say historically. That's more tradition, so I didn't record their names. It's not found in Scripture, but we have in our minds these three kings as given to us. They were actually magi. They're from the Midian tribes that served in the Persian region. They were astrologers. They studied astronomy. Astrology. Sorry, I said that wrong. Um, they were learned men, probably from Babylon. They understood from the stars that a star had appeared that pointed to Christ the King. And how could they know that? And well, I'll give you a couple of suggestions. One, in history, it tells us that Balaam was such a prophet, though he was a pagan prophet, his name is recorded some 500 years after his death. So he was a known prophet, not just known in Scripture, but recorded outside of Scripture as well. But also, we have for a period of 70 years a prophet named Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were in Babylon, and Daniel became Daniel 2.48, the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were set over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Daniel 2.49 and 48. So it shouldn't surprise us that Balaam's prophecy from Jewish scriptures made it all the way to Babylon, that men from Babylon would study the word of God, read about a star, and they may be looking at the skies, they see this new star appear and they start to inquire, what is this about? And they start searching the libraries to discover this one prophecy that was uttered by a pagan prophet named Balaam. And Balaam's prophecy showed the Magi that the star testified of Jesus. And so we're still, with Matthew, still dealing with the uh, Magi coming to Jerusalem, they came to the king, King Herod, and they said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And we go to our third point, and it takes us to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Now we find the circumstances of this. It is before Judah went into captivity. And 2 Chronicles 36, and I'll summarize these things for you, but... Micah is prophesying during the last days of the kingdom of Judah, and they were just a horrific time at that time. Zedekiah was the king over Judah. And the Bible tells us in Second Chronicles 36, 12, that he did evil in the sight of God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And even with the Babylonians, they had besieged Jerusalem. And yet it tells us Zedekiah in Second Chronicles 36, 13, stiffened his neck, he hardened his heart, he turned against the Lord God of Israel. 
And it just wasn't the king turning against the Lord God of Israel. We read again in Second Chronicles 36, 14, all the leaders of the priests and all the people transgressed more and more according to the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem, the temple. So the king became an apostate king, the priests and the people turned their hearts away from the Lord. And God had brought Babylon to besiege their city. He had sent prophets to warn the king, to warn the people. In fact, Second Chronicles 36, 15 and 16 tells us that warnings came to them by God's messengers, rising early, sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God arose against the people till there was no remedy. So in the end, Nebuchadnezzar would kill Zedekiah's sons right before his eyes and then have King Zedekiah's eyes put out with hot irons. The last thing that this king would see would be his own sons being put to death. Then he would be blinded, taken to Babylon, where he would live out the remainder of his days as the guest of the king of Babylon. How nice of that king. He didn't put the king to death, but he put his sons to death and blinded him. And during this time, there was a lack of God-fearing political and spiritual leaders that caused the people of Judah to fall deeper and deeper into apostasy against God. I say those words and I think that they fit perfect for us today in the United States. We have a lack of God-fearing political. They still say in God we trust because it gets them votes. But I don't think too many of our politicians actually trust in God anymore. And we have many spiritual leaders that also no longer trust in God. And we see that our people are falling further and further away from the Lord in our own land. And yet during this time, God sent a prophet named Micah. And he uttered forth these words in Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were little among thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come to me, one to be the ruler in Israel whose going forth shall be of old from everlasting. Although Judah would go into captivity, God was not finished with their people. He sent a prophet named Micah to speak of a coming ruler, one who would come from old, one who is from everlasting, one who would be born in Bethlehem. But in the area of Israel, there were two Bethlehems. Whenever I type in my address, I type in my home address on Mulberry Drive, and the first thing that pops up, it should know me by now. Computers are supposed to be so smart. This week I actually looked up the house, and I was like, I wish. 
I typed in my address in Mulberry Drive and Libertyville pops up. And I can tell you the house in Libertyville on Mulberry Drive is much nicer than the house in Lake Villa on Mulberry Drive. That's why I said I wish. I type in Calvary Chapel Oak Grove. California often pops up. It's like, no, I want the one in Illinois. And for Israel at this time, which Bethlehem are you talking about? Well, the one that's just south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Micah just doesn't speak about the uniqueness of the city the birthplace of the Messiah, but the uniqueness of the one who is to be born there. First of all, he said, he is the one. Secondly, he is ruler. Third, he is from old. And fourth, he is from everlasting. Four things that he talked about the Messiah. He is the one. Isaiah 16:5 tells us, in mercy the throne will be established. The one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. He is also ruler in Psalm 145:13. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all, all generations. Thirdly, he is from old. In Psalm 93.2, it says, Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. And again, he is from everlasting. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And may we praise the one, the ruler in Israel, who's going forth is from old, from everlasting. And so back to Matthew's gospel. The shepherd king in Bethlehem of Judea, he said in Matthew 2, 5, and 6, For it is written by the prophet, and here's the quote, Matthew 2, verse 6, from Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers in Judea. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When King Herod said, Where's the king supposed to be born? The chief priest said, we know, Micah 5, 2, and they quoted it to him. We know the location. Yet the interesting thing to me is that they didn't go to Bethlehem, Ephrathah, to go check it out to see if what the Magi said was actually true. They didn't take the time, as the Magi did, who went down and found the baby Jesus, according to Scripture, in a house at that time where they fell down and worshipped before him and presented him treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's been said, I say this probably every single Christmas, but I'll say it again, the gold has been given because Jesus was born a king. The frankincense, because of the beautiful fragrance of his life and the myrrh because he was born to die for our sins. And throughout history, there's only been one place where the Messiah was to be birthed. And there's only been a, you comparatively, with all the people who's been born on this earth, only a few can say that I am from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. 
And there was only one who could say, I am a descendant of David, the son of Mary. It was Jesus, the King of Israel, the Savior of the world. So God used these wise men to announce the birth. This will get us into much of what takes place in the remainder of Matthew chapter 3. But we're going to look at these in two weeks, as I said. That's for another day. But Micah's prophesied prophecy, it identified Bethlehem Ephrathah as the birthplace of the one, the ruler of Israel, who's going forth are from old, from everlasting. The thing that really stood out to me in these prophecies, each of the prophecies came at a time when Israel was really in a mess. Their nation was in trouble. And often in every situation, it was because Israel had failed God. Israel had failed to walk in obedience to the word of God. Their kings, their leaders, their priests, they had all abandoned the Lord. God sent prophets to prophesy. And the time of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, every morning they came to speak the word of God. And the people refused to hear from the word of the Lord. They refused the prophet of the Lord to speak forth the word of God. They refused to hear, to listen. And yet God sent his prophetic word to speak about his son. And he had given us during those times of calamity and hardship the great Emmanuel prophecy, God with us from Isaiah 7:14, the prophecy of the star and the scepter from Numbers 24:17, and the prophecy of the one, the ruler from old, from everlasting, from Micah 5:2. Today we're living, I believe, in some pretty difficult times. And we are living, as I said, in a time where our leaders have abandoned the things of God. Many may claim the name of God still. It may stay, say, in God we trust on our dollar bill still. They're trying to get rid of that. But it still says it. They may even, the next president, whoever it might be, may even lay his hand on the Bible and swear in the Bible as he's inaugurated inaugurated as the President of the United States. Those things could be all show. I pray that they would not be. But I see in our own nation that we have a time where godly leaders are far and few and in between. And our people are falling further and further away from the Lord God who has birthed us and found in us. Even if we don't want to say that God was in the creating of the United States of America, which I believe that in many ways he was, every one of us here are here as a result of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created us. He formed us. And many people are turning away from the God who created them. And yet God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, grew and became a young man, became a prophet in Israel and spoke forth the word of God to the people, was crucified on the cross. He was buried in a grave and he rose three days later and he is offering salvation to all who look to him in hope. And I pray this Christmas season, if you don't know Jesus, I pray you find him. 
the God's greatest gift to all humanity. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for what you have taught us this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.